there seems to be an increasing number of stories in the news these days about people or companies um, suing other people or companies for, for stealing their ideas, um, kind of copying them without their permission and kind of uh, getting, getting money for that. Um, so I'm thinking about things like uh, technology companies um, who kind of have these big uh, patent wars, um, so like Samsung and Apple, uh, seem to have been fighting for years and years about all these kind of different things that, you know, oh, this one's, this one's used my idea in their product, this one's used my idea in their product, and, um, and, and they seem to come to some agreement, and then a couple of months later, there's, a, there's another new, new thing coming up. Or, um, recently, you might have heard about uh, the song Blared Lines, um, which came out in 2013, um, written by Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams, and uh, they, they were sued recently by the estate of Martin Gay. Uh, Marvin Gaye, sorry, <laughs> not Marvin Gaye, um, and, uh, and they reckoned that this song, Blared Lines, sounded a bit too much like uh, Marvin Gaye's 1977 track, Got to Give It Up, um, and, and the US uh, jury, who is, who is um, kind of deciding the case, uh, they agreed, um, and so uh, Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke have got to, got to pay a load of money. Um, authors are not immune from this either. Um, you might have heard some stories about J.K. Rowling being sued on multiple occasions um, for, for stealing uh, ideas for Harry Potter from other people, although uh, I don't think any of them have come to anything. Uh, it seems more like people trying to make a bit of money out of, out of the success of that series. Um, sometimes it's a bit harder to claim copyright infringement, so um, if you've got a reference work, like a dictionary, for example, that's, that, that's quite a bit harder. You know, it's, it's kind of Factual. You would expect two English dictionaries to be very similar, um, but but companies have come up with ways of um, of trying to deal with this and stop people copying their work. Um, they're often called copyright traps. Um, and one of my favourite stories about this um, is is about a, a map uh, map makers, and uh, we've got a little YouTube video. Um, it's a guy called John Green, who's an author. Um, who wrote uh, The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns, which have been released recently as movies. Um, you might have heard of him. Uh, he tells the story much better than me, so um, I'm going to play a little video. Um, hopefully it'll work. State that was made in 1937 by the General Drafting Company. It's an extremely famous map among cartography nerds because down here at the bottom of the Catskill Mountains, there is a little town called Roscoe. That's Actually, this will go easier if I just put it up here. There's Roscoe. And then right above Roscoe is Rockland, New York. And then right above that is the tiny town of Aglo, New York. Aglo, New York is very famous to cartographers because it's a paper town. It's uh, also known as a copyright trap. Map makers, because my map of New York and your map of New York are going to look very similar on account of the shape of New York. Uh, often, map makers will insert fake places onto their maps in order to protect their copyright because then... If my fake place shows up on your map, I can be well and truly sure that you have robbed me. Aglo is a scrabbleization of the initials of the two guys who made this map, Ernest G. Alpers and Otto Lindbergh, and they released this map in 1937. Decades later, Rand McNally releases a map with Aglo, New York on it at the same exact intersection of two dirt roads in the middle of nowhere. Well, you can imagine the delight over at General Drafting. Uh, they immediately call Rand McNally and they say, we've caught you. We made Aglo, New York up. It is a fake place. It's a paper town. We're going to sue your pants off. 
And Rand McNally says, no, 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 no. Aglo is real. Because people kept going to that intersection of two dirt roads in the middle of nowhere, expecting there to be a place called Aglo, someone built a place called Aglo, New York. It had a gas station, a general store, two houses at its peak. I, I just think that's an amazing story and like, really clever um, of the map makers to kind of come up with this idea of putting fake places, um, but in- incredible that someone actually went and, went and built it. That's not really the, uh, the, the, the point that I'm trying to get across there, but, um, but it's more the idea that uh, universally we, we kind of feel that uh, creators deserve to be uh, rightfully credited for, for the work that they've done. Um, so as we, as we carry on our series in Judges, uh, I think the author here wants to make it clear um, that God deserves all of the credit um, for, for what he uh, does for Israel, for saving Israel, uh, and not the judges. Um, so I've entitled our talk today, um, Credit Where Credit is Due. Um, let me just uh, pray before we dig into the passage. Our Heavenly Father, uh, We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it speaks to us um, from uh, thousands of years ago and thousands of miles away. Uh, Lord, it still speaks to us. And we pray that it would would speak to us all today and to our hearts, um, that you would teach us something about yourself uh, and that you would change us to be more like you. Amen. Amen. So, uh, yeah, this is... uh, this is quite an interesting couple of chapters um, from, the, from the book's perspective um, because unlike the rest of the book, uh, it's not just historical. Um, I'm not going to be able to put this on here, am I? Um, so so we've, got, we've got the historical um, chapter that we read, uh, that Louise read for us, chapter 4. Um, but then we've got a more kind of poetic chapter, chapter five. They're kind of two different uh, views of the same, the same events, really. Um, so, so yeah, kind of chapter, chapter, four is a, uh, chapter five is a song, really, um, although we don't, we don't know the tune of it. Um, so we can't sing it. Maybe we could have made a tune up to it and, uh, and, and sung it. It's quite a long one there. Uh, but it gives us a more kind of colourful and emotional um, perspective on things. Songs were often used in ancient civilizations to commemorate victories uh, in war. Um, and this is, this is one of the earliest examples that we've got of, of human poetry um, from, from anywhere, really. And they, they maybe give us a bit more of an idea about uh, the identity of the people involved, what was, what was important to them and why, um, rather than just a straight, this is what happened. Um, I must admit that I'm not really a, a poetry person, in general, I don't, I don't generally get it, um, and I can see a, a wry smile from a couple of people. Um, <laughs> um, maybe all the same. So this is, is possibly not been the, the easiest um, of, of, of passages to, to prepare for me. Um, it's kind of get hold of and understand. But I, but I hope that we can be encouraged and challenged as we walk through uh, God's word together. So. Um, so first of all, uh, we're going to take a look at the story from a human perspective. Um, if you've heard some of the other talks in this series in Judges, you'll know that there's a, a repeating pattern, a kind of a cycle 
which Israel gets into, which goes something like this. Um, Israel begins to worship the false gods of the nations around them, uh, instead of looking to Yahweh as the one true God. God then sends judgment in the form of uh, another nation uh, to oppress them. Eventually, they cry out to God for help. And then God raises up a judge, uh, a leader from among the people who delivers them from the hands uh, of their subjectors. They turn back to God. But then when the leader dies, things go back to the way they were. And they're kind of back at the start again. Last week we heard about um, Othniel, Ehud and Shamgar, who God used to rescue Israel from uh, the Arameans, the Moabites and the Philistines, respectively. Uh, so th- those were some of the nations that uh, directly surrounded Israel, kind of down in the south and, and to the east. Uh, but this time, it's the Canaanites, it's the people who are in the land, um, who are the villains of the story. And things are worse than ever, really. So previously we've seen that, that the Israelites were subjected to these other nations. That's the word that, that is used in our English translations. So in in other words, bits of Israel came under foreign rule. Uh, But this time, the author uses a different phrase. Uh, He describes the rule of Canaan as cruel oppression. Um, And not only that, but it's the longest lasting one so far. For 20 years, it says, they're under the rule of King Jabin. Jabin is described as the king of Hazor. Hazor was a town in the north of Israel, um, which uh, has been uncovered um, by archaeological uh, digs. And the evidence uh, suggests that it was quite a big and important town in Canaan, and it was, it was well fortified. Um, but it's, it's been mentioned previously in the Bible, um, in Joshua chapter 11, the Israelites actually bend it to the ground. Um, so it, it looks like Israel is kind of left there, and they've allowed the Canaanites to come back in and rebuild uh, this important city. It certainly has significant military power. Uh, Verse 3 says that they had 900 iron chariots, um, which is pretty vast. Um, I don't know if you can picture that. It's it's really hard. Yeah, it's huge. Nobody was going to mess with a power like that. Uh, And in charge of this, this whole army was a man called Sisera. We don't get that much detail about how Sisera was, was cruel to Israel. Uh, but if we sneak a look into chapter 5 uh, and verse 6, um, we see that the roads were abandoned. Travellers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. So people were, were too afraid to even leave their homes. And if they did, they used the back roads instead of the main highways um, because they just weren't safe. And it seems like they'd basically given up all hope. Verse 8 of chapter 5, not a shield or a spear was seen. There was no rebellion, no revolution going on. No Napoleon or Luke Skywalker was, was being uh, ready to overthrow the rulers. They had no weapons, they had no warriors. Things were, were pretty grim, really. But then, after 20 years, some bright spark has this great idea. Crazy idea, guys. But anyone thought of asking God for help, I was like, oh, uh, that's, that's a good idea. I think we've done that before, and I think, I think we had some success with it. 
So, but 20 years it took them to, to come up with this idea. And their God, who had brought them out of Egypt, who had brought them into the promised land, just as he had promised. And, um, and, and he's already saved them a few times. Yeah, it takes them 20 years to, to think to ask for him, to think to ask him for help. So, so they do cry out to God, and God responds emphatically, as he always does. Uh, only this time, he sends three people to rescue them, uh, instead of just the one. And the first is uh, Deborah. She is the, the judge in this chapter. Deborah is the only female judge that we read about. Um, and she's also quite different from all of the others in that she's not a, a military leader or an assassin. Um, she is, she's more of a, a wise ruler. Her skills are, are kind of in, in ruling uh, rather than in fighting. So it says that the Israelites would come to um, have their disputes resolved, um, which kind of foreshadows the, uh, the kings um, who come later on in the Bible. Uh, Deborah was also a prophetess, so God spoke through her. Um, and we can, we can assume that she was uh, kind of chosen by God um, and that she was encouraging the Israelites to turn back to God. She's, she's the closest we get to a true uh, leader of Israeli judges in that she is actually ruling rather than just in charge of some uh, military campaign. Second person we meet is uh, Barak. We don't really know much about him, except that his dad's called Abinoam and he's from Kadesh in Naphtali. He's probably not a military leader. Israel didn't seem to have a, a, a proper army at this point. So he's probably just a normal guy. And he comes to Deborah, and he gets a command from God to go and wait up at Mount Tabor with 10,000 Israelites. He's to wait for Sisera and his 900 chariots, and he's to attack him. Now, I think Barak probably thought that Deborah was bonkers. 10,000 men against 900 chariots. Like, there really isn't much competition there. I know they've got the numbers, but a chariot can wipe through hundreds of men uh, with ease. So it's, it's, it's a complete mismatch, really. So, so he's understandably uh, a little bit reluctant, uh, but he does agree on the basis that Deborah comes with him. Um, I guess he would, need, he would need all the help that he could get. So, so it's quite nice to have a prophet of God there with you, um, when, you when you go into this crazy, uh, crazy mismatch. Um, so... We shouldn't be too quick to judge Barak on his apparent lack of faith. He, he kind of, maybe on the, on the first reading, he kind of seems a bit, a bit whiny. Oh, if you don't come with me, I'm not going. But it's kind of understandable, really, um, given what God was asking him to do. It was, it was a terrifying thing. Um, and he did go and do it, even if he did show a bit of reluctance. So Deborah, Deborah agrees. She goes with him. Uh, they wait up the mountain with 10,000 Israelites. And when the command is given, uh, they, they charge at Sisera. Um, and Sisera and the Canaanite army are wiped out. And Sisera is forced to run for his life. And then, of course, enters Jael, who's the third person that God uses. She's from a family that is friendly with Jabin, who is the king of the Canaanites. Um, and she invites uh, Sisera into her home for safety. 
but she puts the final nail in Canaan's uh, coffin by hammering a tent peg into Sisera's head. We aren't told why she did this. You know, I'm sure there are thousands ways she could have killed Sisera. And it, it's pretty shocking, really. It's pretty brutal. Um, but it gets the job done. And it marks the beginning of the end for, um, for, for Sisera's oppressive rule over Israel. So that's the, the essence of the story. God saves Israel through two women and a man. But you'll notice that we, we really don't get that much detail about these people. We don't really get that much detail about what's going on. We, we, we get quite a bit of detail about the end of Sisera. It's interesting. But, but the rest of it, there's, there's not much detail there. Um, and I think that's because the author isn't really too concerned with the detail of the people or the events. He's more concerned with teaching us something about God. And I think there are two big ideas uh, that, uh, that we're going to look at and um, they're being taught through these chapters. So, the first thing is that God is a warrior who fights for his people's salvation. Now, I don't, I don't think we usually like to talk or think about God in these terms. We much prefer to think of him as a, a loving father full of grace and mercy and compassion. And of course all those things are true about God and it is good to, to think about those things. But this passage and the Bible as a whole really won't let us get away with only thinking about God in those terms. There are aspects of God that, that sometimes we, we neglect a bit either because they don't quite fit with our picture of who God is or, or because they're they're a bit difficult and challenging. Um, and God's role as a warrior is, is certainly one of these. Um, and, and I have found this, this tough, uh, thinking about it this week. Uh, I'll admit that. How can the same God who tells us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek command Israel to go to war and to wipe out this whole city? And what's more, he, he's not just giving Israel the command from a distance, like uh, General Melcher in Blackadder goes for. Uh, if you know that, he, he kind of sits miles away um, at his desk, um, you know, just giving commands. He's, he's not in the war himself, he's just giving commands. God is not like that. He is, he, he is there. He's on the front line. He's doing battle himself. So let, let's have a look at the evidence from the passage first, and then we'll think about how we can square these two apparently uh, conflicting views of God. So the first thing we see is that God gives the command to engage in battle. So if we look at chapter 4, uh, verses 6 and 7, Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. It is not like it's Barak's idea and he goes to God for help. It is God's idea. And then he charges Barak with carrying out this, uh, this big responsibility. But God doesn't just give the command here, does he? He, he gives him tactics as well. He tells Barak how many men he needs, where he needs to be, and when he needs to go. And as we said, God is not sat behind his desk, giving commands over the phone. 
he's leading the charge himself. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Uh, and Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Hasn't the Lord gone ahead of you? The very next verse, verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. God routs the Canaanite army. Um, the, the only uh, place I can think we, we use that word rout nowadays is in sports reports. So if, if one team has, has um, inflicted a, a heavy defeat on another team, we often call it a rout. So it's, a, it's, it's kind of a big, comprehensive victory. So God basically totally destroys the troops on the battlefield. Uh, chapter 5 adds a bit more flavour to this idea. Uh, chapter 5, verse 4. O oh Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Eden, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. So we've kind of got this idea of God marching into battle. There's something quite uh, like deliberate and, and purposeful about that. He's not just kind of swooped in at the last minute uh, to save them, but his, his intention is to fight alongside them. And, and he's terrifying, according to these verses. Um, there are other terrifying warriors in, in the Bible. Um, one that comes to mind is uh, Goliath, um, who was uh, a, a giant of a man of the Philistines it comes a bit later on in the Old Testament um, and, and the Israelites were, were terrified they were greatly afraid it says in 1 Samuel 17 but God is so mighty that it's not only people that quake before him but the very mountains quake before the Lord let's give an example from uh, another example from outside this passage uh, in Exodus God has just led uh, Israel out of Egypt um, and Moses sings a song um, and, and in it, Exodus chapter 15 verse 3 says the Lord is a warrior the Lord is his name if we had time we could, we could read that, that whole chapter or indeed um, lots of Old Testament passages and, and there's a clear picture throughout that God is a mighty warrior who strikes fear into his enemies and totally uh, crushes them. So, that is the, the evidence that God is a warrior. But how can we understand this as people in the 21st century who are maybe a bit uncomfortable with this? Here's a couple of ideas to help us. Uh, number one, God must destroy his enemies for his people to be rescued. So God's concern here is for the people of Israel, his chosen people who have been oppressed and have turned away from him. For his people to be rescued, God must destroy his enemies there. There isn't another way. For the Israelites to gain their freedom, the Canaanites must lose theirs. They must be taken out of the picture. Uh, thinking back to what we said earlier about, um, about copyright and patent lawsuits. For one side to win, the other side has got to lose, haven't they? For one side to gain what is rightfully theirs, the other side has got to incur a cost. It's not a perfect analogy, but 
But we can see that for someone to gain, someone else must lose out. So for Israel to gain salvation, Canaan must be destroyed. For God to rescue his people, he must be a warrior and defeat his enemies. And the other important thing to say here is that Canaan is not an innocent party here. This is not just a, a, a country that God has picked on, who are just, you know, minding their own business, doing nothing wrong. Canaan were not good people. They were cruel. They oppressed those who were different. They plundered the places that they conquered. And they took uh, their girls as sex slaves. If we look at the end of chapter 5, um, from verse uh, 28, through the window appeared Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answered her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A girl or two for each. Colourful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colourful garments, embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this as plunder. So we get get a good picture there of what uh, Canaan was like. So we're not supposed to feel sorry for them. We're supposed to celebrate their downfall like chapter 5 does. Um, maybe one of the reasons why we're a bit uncomfortable with this is that most of us have not to live under this kind of cruel oppression that Israel did. But what about today? Is God still wanting persecuted Christians to go into war uh, and uh, fight holy wars against their persecutors? Well, I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear that I'm pretty sure that he isn't. Um, but God is still a warrior and he still does want us to fight. It's just that in the Old Testament the battle is military and in these New Testament times uh, it's, it's more of a spiritual battle. So God's, uh, God's covenant, God's kind of agreement and promise with Israel in the Old Testament involved them having their own land and their own nation. So military battles were necessary to keep that promise to keep them from being assimilated into the other nations around them. But they were also falling into worshipping the idols of those nations, and so the things causing them to stumble had to be removed. But when Jesus came, he brought with him a new covenant, and the gospel was preached to all nations, not just to Israel. And the promise of a physical land and nation wasn't really that relevant anymore. As Christians, we are people of that new covenant, so the war is not a military one, but a spiritual one. Uh, and, uh, and so we see that uh, in Jesus. The Jews were expecting this great uh, army general who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. But that's not what happened. Jesus fulfilled the role of warrior on the cross as he died. Uh, in the New Testament book of Colossians, Paul writes this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made, that's Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Christ is a mighty warrior who crushed the power of sin and the power of the devil and and all his forces. Uh, but, But also we know that these powers are still at work. The job isn't quite finished yet. Um, but Christ will return to complete the victory. Um, in, in our Gurkhas a few months ago, we were looking at Revelation, um, and, and chapter 16 talks about the seven bowls of God's wrath, how God will, will pour out his wrath as his kind of settled, uh, controlled anger against sin. And verse 16 of that, that chapter says, 
uh, that God's enemies gathered at, at Armageddon, and that's where he defeated them. Uh, a lot of people think that the Armageddon is an allusion to um, Megiddo, which is mentioned in chapter 5 here. Um, so this is kind of a, almost a pointer forward to that final battle, uh, that final victory that God will have over his enemies. For Christians, God is the warrior that fights for us, that fights for our salvation. And it shouldn't be a point of embarrassment for us, but it should be a reason for celebration, uh, because apart from him, we haven't got any hope. But there's a warning as well, because we've only got cause to celebrate if we are on God's side. It is only the people that God is fighting for, that is those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, Everyone else is an enemy of God. And if you're an enemy of God, it's not going to go well for you on that day of judgment. So let me just plead with you, if you're not a Christian, to take the claims of the, Bibles, of the Bible seriously and, and look into it. There's no, there's no middle ground here. You're either a follower of Jesus or you are God's enemy. So God is the the warrior who fights for our salvation. So I said there were two main points. Um, Second one is that God is God is the author who writes our salvation. I'll put it another way: God is the one who plans and controls the events of the world, and who alone is worthy uh, of the praise and the glory. Uh, for rescuing us. This story makes it absolutely clear that God is in complete control at every stage of events. So, at the start of the episode, we've already said Israel was in a hopeless state. They had no warriors, there were no weapons around, um, while Sisera and Canaan had 900 chariots at their command. The only thing that could give them victory is a miracle. They needed divine intervention. And so God does intervene. He raises up Deborah as a prophet. He raises up Barak as a commander to to put together the army. And then God brings Sisera to the banks of the river and causes a flood, which is his downfall. Uh, Let's look again at chapter 5. I'm just going to pick out a few verses here. So verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Eden... The air shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. If we look down to verse 19, uh, kings came, they fought, the kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo, uh, but they carried off no silver, no plunder. From the, from the heavens the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. So this there was kind of a sudden downpour and a flood that basically rendered the chariots useless. It kind of made made the plain uh, muddy and boggy, so there's no way the chariots could go anywhere. And this was brought about by God in order to rescue his people. And there's uh, there's been plenty of times when this particular river has flooded, and and that has happened. Um, But it happens during the, the, the wet season, and uh, Cicero would have been well aware of this. 
So he's not going to take his army there when it was likely that that would happen. So, so it can't have been the rainy season when that happened. So, so we must be sure that God uh, sent this as a miracle. And what's more, God doesn't just enter the story for a brief moment to mess with the weather. God wrote the story and things are just playing out exactly as he planned. God makes a promise in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. And that is exactly what does happen. Uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Sisera gathered together his Nanodarian chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagim to the Kishon River. And then verse 15, uh, we see... Uh, see the army get defeated. God also plans Sisera's end at the hands of a woman. Chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, Deborah says, I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And of course, as we read, uh, Sisera dies at the hands of Jael. So God is, is the one who is, is planning all this and it is all coming to pass, as he said. And therefore, God deserves the glory. With all the other judges, we can immediately point to a human who, you know, we might give the credit for the Israelites' victories. But here there's, there's three people um, and as we read through the story, we kind of have our mind changed about who's, you know, who, who should take the credit for this. Uh, Barak, he, you know, he's going to lead the army, surely. He's going to get the glory for this victory. No way. God is going to deliver Sisera into a woman's hands. So it must be Deborah. She must be the one who's going to get the glory for this. No way. We were fooled. It's not Deborah. It's another woman. It's Jael. She's the woman of prophecy. She's going to be exalted. But then we come to chapter 5 and it's clear that the only one who should be honoured for this victory is the Lord God Almighty. Praise the Lord is the repeated refrain, verse 2, verse 9, chapter 5, because the victory is his. Now it's, it's quite normal for a nation's political leader and their military leader to take credit for their army's victories, but neither Deborah nor Barak, who are writing this song, take any credit at all. They give the glory all to God because it is rightfully his. The law in this country and in most countries in the world upholds the right of creators uh, to not have someone else take their work and claim credit for it and be paid for it. And if it's important um, that we give human creators, authors and uh, composers, that sort of thing, the recognition that they deserve for their work, then how much more important is it that we give God the praise for his work? But even though God is totally able to do anything that he wants to do without any human help. He chooses to use humans as his, uh, as his instruments. Let me say that again. God is more than capable of doing everything that he wants to do without, uh, without the flawed, sinful people that we are stepping in. But he graciously allows you and me, to be involved as he accomplishes his eternal purposes, just as he gave Deborah, Barak and Jael their own parts to play in rescuing Israel. 
Uh, let me give an example close to home. Um, the Bible is quite clear that none of us is able to do anything to change our or another person's heart to make them follow Jesus uh, and be saved. And yet, every one of us here today who is a Christian will have a story which involves other people um, kind of teaching us uh, and leading us to Christ. Just think for a minute about one person in particular who, who might have been uh, really influential for you uh, in your own uh, story of coming to faith. And think about the fact that there was someone like that in their life as well who has led them to faith. And in their life, all the way back to the apostles and to Jesus himself. God had all of these people, all of these stories that we can tell, planned out from before the universe even began. But even though God has the whole of history mapped out, and even though he deserves all the glory for salvation we are still responsible for, for our actions when we fall short of what we should be uh, even those which God uses to serve his purpose so it is God that, that gives Israel into Canaan's hands in chapter 4 verse 2 let's go right back to the beginning of this, uh, this passage uh, the, the Lord sold them, sold Israel into the hands of Jabin but the Canaanites are still punished for it. And God is still angry uh, with the Israelites who wouldn't get involved in fighting. In chapter 5, uh, we didn't read it earlier, but um, uh, the, there's a chunk there. I, I won't read it now either. You can go in and read it later. But it kind of goes through um, a lot of the, uh, the tribes of Israel. And some of them joined in the fighting. And some of them are like, no, nah, I don't fancy that. I'm going to stay at home. Um, and, and God is angry with, with them for that. So we've got to hold God's sovereignty, his, his control of the events of the world, and man's responsibility uh, together, just as this passage does and just the rest of the Bible does. It's a difficult uh, doctrine and there's a certain element of mystery to it. Uh, we can't understand it fully and it's hard to, to kind of hold them in balance. But it's important that we do it because uh, the Bible says these things are true and if we fall kind of on one side or the other and forget, forget the other thing uh, then we fall into error so if, if we say that man is not responsible for his actions then, then God is not just is he he is he's bloodthirsty and vengeful and um, you know he just, he just wipes out the Canaanites because he feels like it they don't deserve to be punished if man is not responsible but on the other side, if God is not sovereign, then his plans can be thwarted by man. And we can't be sure that his promises will come true. So we have to hold these two things together. Anyway, that was kind of a bit of a sidetrack. But the, the point is that God has written the history of the universe. And he's written our personal uh, histories and our corporate histories as well. He has the, the copyright, if you like. And therefore, God deserves all of the glory. So, uh, two big ideas that this passage is trying to teach us. God is the warrior who fights for our salvation. And God is the author who holds the copyright to our salvation. 
So what? Why should we care? Well, we all face things in our lives that we must uh, battle and fight. Face spiritual enemies and physical battles as well. Um, So it is great to know that God is a warrior who fights for us, who doesn't sit idly by when things are tough. And it is also great to know that he knows the end of the story because he wrote it. So when you're facing temptation to sin and you want to give up the battle because it's just too hard, remember that you're not fighting it alone, but with the greatest possible warrior on your side who has promised that sin will be defeated completely and finally in the future. When you're battling things from within, uh, doubt and fear and apathy, whatever it might be, or enemies from outside, other people, or our circumstances, know that God is a warrior and that if God wants them to be defeated, they will be defeated without a shadow of a doubt. Now, this isn't a promise that you're going to win every single victory along the way. God's plan for us will probably involve suffering at various points and in various ways. But this is a guarantee that if you're on God's side, you will have the final victory. And when we do see victories, when we don't give in to temptation, when we see uh, people come into faith, when we see the church growing and God's message uh, going out in our town, in our uh, country, let's not pat ourselves on the back for it, but let's give the glory to God. I think this is especially important for our leaders, uh, so we need to pray for them, that they wouldn't fall into this trap of congratulating themselves, uh, but would praise God as he deserves. How often have you praised God recently for the things that he's done in your life? I don't know about you, but I find it much easier to, to credit myself when things go well and attribute blame to God when things go badly. Um, one of the youth was saying to me recently, I really like to brag. It's really nice to brag, isn't it? You know, when, when people think, you know, you've done something really good. You know, that, that, that's kind of, that, that's probably a challenge for, for a lot of us. How can we be good at giving the glory to God, bragging about God and not about ourselves. I guess on a practical level, we can, we can be good at that by maybe spending time regularly thinking about it, uh, writing it down, um, whether that's kind of as a, as a diary or if you're more creative, maybe a song or a poem, whatever it is. Uh, and how about asking each other, not, not like as a test, yeah, have you been praising God this week? But more, um, more to just encourage each other to, to think about all the great things that God has done for us. God doesn't set up paper towns or copyright traps for us, but nevertheless, He deserves all the glory for all of the wonderful things that He's done, forgiving our sins, bringing us from death to life, bringing us from darkness into light, securing us a place uh, in His eternal kingdom through the death of Jesus on the cross. So let's give credit where credit is due. Let's pray.